This is More Than Therapy Podcast More Than Therapy This is More Than Therapy More Than Therapy Podcast This is More Than Therapy More Than Therapy Podcast This is More Than Therapy Podcast Hello and welcome to another episode of More Than Therapy. Today we have Steve Wilson, who's going to talk to us today about teetering on a tightrope, his life, lifelong battle, or we just say adventure with the the diagnosis of bipolar disorder. Uh, He had a terrifying, it all started with a terrifying day at the theater when he was nine years old and he overcame many journeys that many have, suicidal ideations and the journeys of medication and therapy and the, the, the mountains and valleys that go along with that, especially over the years, you know what I'm saying? As you know, the, di- the diagnosis and the treatment for it has changed dramatically from DSM one, two, three, four, and five. Um, he's gonna talk to us about, you know, his family interactions and the impact it had on his diagnosis. And we must always remember we are not our diagnosis. This is just an attribute of who he is and what makes Steve. But Steve is not bipolar. Steve is diagnosed with bipolar. Steve, your story. Hi, Felipe. Thanks for having me. Um, My story really starts uh, when I was nine years old. Prior to that, I had been a a fun-loving fun-loving, everyday kid, uh, doing good things and bad things, but I was really happy. And then, and I used to go to the movies every Saturday. We'd get on our bikes and ride over to the local theater and just have a good time. On that Saturday, in about 1957, I went to the theater and they would show Double features, two movies with a break in between. So when the first movie was over, I went up to the concession stand and then went over to get a Coke. And quickly this man put a dime in the machine for me and paid for my Coke. I thanked him. And then he said, would you come with me? Uh, I need some help. And I was a naive kid back then. I didn't know what he was talking about. And he had me go into the restroom, which I kind of was not upset about that because I had been cleaning restrooms in a camp for a year. And so I thought he just wanted me to do something in there. Well, as soon as I got in there, he told me to take down my pants Uh, he committed oral sex on me and he stuck his fingers in my rectum and when I tried to resist he threw me up against the wall and started choking me at that time I kind of passed out I guess because I don't remember anything else finally I woke up and we left. I don't know who the guy was. I've never seen him since. Uh, But the bigger question at the time is, why did he pick me and 
what in the hell was he doing? I never knew that it was possible. And another question was, who do I tell this to? And the first thing I came to my mind was, I can't tell anybody. It shows how bad I am. So for 30 years, I never let anybody know and uh, kept the secret myself. And then as we went on, as I went on into uh, junior high, oh, fourth and fifth grade, uh, the depression started setting in. I had no idea what it was. Now you gotta realize back then, 50 years ago, uh, they didn't know much about bipolar. In fact, most people who showed my symptoms were called depressive. And there were certain medications for depression. But in fourth grade, I, uh, we went to, to Florida for a couple of weeks in the wintertime and I got out of school. And when I went back, the world just crashed. And I don't have a clue why I didn't know what was going on, but I was a straight A student before. And then my grades just fell to nothing. My, I had no one to tell because I didn't know what the hell it was. So my teacher told me that if I didn't get my act together, she was going to hold me back from fourth grade. And she told my mother. And a strange thing happened. My mother didn't say anything. She didn't ask what was wrong. She really didn't care. And I got better because of my friends and sports. I was a pretty good athlete. And so I got my grades back up and I was sent on to the fifth grade and everything was fine at that time, except for one little thing. When I was in that state where she told me I wasn't gonna pass fourth grade, I went home and wrote myself a note, stuck it away in my old desk, never paid any attention to it again. Several years later, when I cleared out that old desk, I mean many years later, the note was still there. It read, if I fail fourth grade, I will kill myself. That was the beginning of the suicidal ideations. Um, but they didn't continue for some reason and something I didn't know and couldn't possibly know was at that time and, all, and for, for everybody else who has bipolar, it comes in waves. You have plenty of good days if you're lucky and then you have plenty of bad days where you're ruled down. I gotta explain something here while I'm thinking about it. Uh, there are two kinds of bipolar. There's bipolar one, which you probably all have heard of more like 
uh, mania um, where you're very high and you can think you're on top of the world and you spend all your money and you buy a car you can't afford. And then when you come down, everything collapses and you've lost almost everything. The other kind of bipolar, which I am, is bipolar two. And instead of having the mania, I, I have what is called hypomania, which is kind of in the middle. I do get manic, but not to the degree of someone who is suffering from true mania. But what I suffered from was a deep, terrible depression that made me feel like I was worthless, like uh, no one wanted me. Uh, like there was no up for me and I wanted to die. But at that time, I didn't want to kill myself. I just wanted to die. Um, that went on for many years uh, during junior high and high school. What predominantly I found was that I couldn't get a hold of my mind, and I couldn't concentrate, I couldn't make decisions, and so the only way for me to get through school and pass my classes was to cheat. So every chance I got on every test, I would put a book in front of me and copy from it. Um, I would stare at uh, better students' papers. Whatever it took for me to pass and move on to the next grade. And it worked, but it set up a terrible pattern. I did nothing to even try to prepare for my classes. And even though I passed them all, I learned absolutely nothing. And then one day, it was in POD class, um, we had a test, and a gal in front of me, who was probably the number one student in the school, this was in 12th grade, I think, uh, she took the test and for some reason held up her paper. Maybe she knew I copied it. I don't have a clue. But I copied the paper and got everyone right. The problem was that my teacher knew that I wasn't that good of a student. So she called me out on it in front of the whole class. And I jumped up and ran out of the room. Probably lucky that I did because she didn't turn me in. I would have been expelled. That went on, that kind of behavior went on. No, wait a minute, that was in the junior year. And then in my spring of my junior year, um, let me go back a second. The sports I played in high school were basketball and golf. I really excelled at golf and was a decent football or basketball player. Um, I was playing six man on the, on the basketball team um, and this is my senior year, and all of a sudden, 
myself and three other really good players, all white, got kicked off the football team or the basketball team. It was at a time in, in the United States when there were riots all over the place uh, between blacks and whites. And my supposition uh, was that be, when we got kicked off, uh, three blacks replaced us. So my supposition has always been that we got treated unfairly because of the race wars. Uh, and I tell you what, I am not bigoted in any way. So I didn't really do anything about it or ask any questions. The next thing was when I was a junior on the golf team, we were all very good and slated to be one of the tops in the, in the, in the central division or even in the state. And uh, there were four of us who were, who shot realistically and a lot under 80, usually low 70s, mid 70s. And we went to the district finals. Three teams would move on to the state finals. And I was the last to play. And when I came in with a 74, I found out from my teammate that we had lost by one, and the only reason was because the other team cheated. Then we went into the scores tent, and I turned, I didn't keep my own score, another guy did, another player on the other team, and he turned in the score and gave me a 72. I didn't know what to do because I knew I shot a 74. Then I went up and looked at his at my card and he had made a mistake on one hole where he gave me a birdie instead of the bogey I got. So what do I do? Um, I thought about it for a couple minutes. It's the, the idea of either winning and going on to the state or losing and being done for the season. I let the 72 stand, walked away, went to celebrate with my teammates, and we finished third. The next week was a state tournament, but my mind was out of control from what I'd done. And I shot a 93 on the first day and an 82 on the second day because I could no longer play golf. It was over, just like that. To continue with that part of the story, um, I never was able to play a good game of golf again. Um, I became, I had so loved golf that I became a uh, assistant golf professional in Scottsdale, Arizona at McCormick Ranch Golf Club. When we got into tournaments out there, I was shooting the 90s. And for that and other reasons, I gave up. But it was my dream to be a, in the golf business, but that didn't work out. My father had a 
men's and women's clothing store in Delaware, Ohio, where I lived. And so I asked to go into business with him. Probably one of the worst decisions I ever made, but I didn't know what else to do. So I went into the clothing business, was bored as hell, and within a few months I quit that, took another job, quit that, took another job, quit that, and eventually went back to the store again in Delaware. And even though I hated it, I knew it was the only place I could go because I felt safe not liking the job or the business or anything, but I felt safe, uh, which is something that most bipolar people need, a feeling of a home, of being, of being under control. So anyway, I stayed there for several years, and before anything else, I wanted to go back and talk a little bit about my family because my family never embraced my illness. And over the course of all those years, um, they didn't do anything for me. They didn't think there was anything wrong. But the one thing my mother did for me is she got me in touch with a psychiatrist in Columbus, Ohio, and that started my journey of, of therapy that lasted for 50 years. He prescribed all kinds of medications for me, all with the, with the purpose of helping someone with depression. Nothing worked. I felt like I had uh, the flu, I would get a terrible upset stomach, diarrhea, and everything. Sometimes I would get the shakes of bed. I couldn't stand it. I couldn't sleep. None of the pills worked. That was 1971. So that's the way I operated until 1978, seven years or eight years. I forget what it was. And... He said at that time, remember this is seven years later. Oh, you know what? I think I might've made a mistake. Maybe you're bipolar. And he says, let's try lithium. And he gave me the prescription for lithium. And in two days, I felt like a new man. I would say I got better by 50%. And he couldn't believe how, how well I responded to it. But remember, I lost those seven or eight years. Um, before I go on any further, I want to tell you about the three worst days of my life after what happened in 1957. Um, I became, let's put it this way, 
on a Saturday evening in 19, June of 1971, my mother and father had a barbecue party in their backyard. Now remember, I was really, this is my worst time. I was really down, couldn't get any lower, but they said, Steve, why don't you go over and cook the hamburgers? I went over and started cooking the hamburgers. My father came over and said, pushed me out of the way and said, you don't know how to cook hamburgers, I'll do it. Well, I'd never gotten along with my father very well. And there was a carving knife sitting there on the grill. I picked it up, moved toward him, and then stopped. A real calmness came over me and I said, you know, this is not good. You're gonna to go to Harding Hospital. Harding Hospital was a psychiatric hospital in Worthington, Ohio, which is about 15 minutes from us. And I got my bro brother-in-law and sister talked to them about what I just tried to do. And they got in touch with Harding Hospital and I went in that night. I was there for three weeks. One thing that had happened prior to the attempt on my father was that that, that morning I had gone, I'm a big swimmer and I went to the uh, Delaware County pool to swim some laps. And as I dived into the water, a voice came into my head, kill yourself, kill yourself. Every stroke, kill yourself, kill yourself. So I hustled on out of the pool, I only swam two laps and I went home and tried to figure out how to get through the day. The next day, we had a store down the street from the main store, which was a college, college store, and I ran it on Saturdays. Got in the room, kill yourself, kill yourself. So I ran over to the phone and called my psychiatrist, said, I gotta see you, I'm in trouble. And he said, I'm sorry, I can't see today. My daughter's getting married. And I said, okay, because you know, when you're, when you're bipolar, you don't want to put anybody out. Everything is, oh, I'm so worthless. I don't want to make anybody do anything on my behalf. So I let it go. And then that's, that was the same night that I tried to uh, cut my father. So anyway, I stayed in the, in the uh, hospital for three weeks. I was, this is really before lithium. I was given more medications that didn't work. And for the next seven or eight years, I stumbled and bumbled around, quitting jobs, doing everything that I could to not do anything. Then I got the lithium and the lithium changed my life. But it did not 
bring me to full normalcy. I would say I was about halfway there. And I still had, you know what, I never had any more suicidal ideations, but what I had was ruminations. My mind would just fixate on something and just over and over and over again, it would swarm through my head and I couldn't, couldn't stop it. At night, I'd lay down and then it would come back and it would keep me up all night. And this went on all the time. And then somewhere around 1985, my psychiatrist died. And I had no one to go to. Well, I found another psychiatrist and I and I'd never met him before. And I went to see him and he said, oh, before I tell you this, he, my first psychiatrist put me on what's called Navane or theothexine, which is an antipsychotic. And then for uh, runaway heartbeat and fast thinking and nervousness, he put me on one, which was called Navane. That made it my cocktail at the time. And it served me fairly well. I was able to function. Well, this new doctor I went to said, throw all that medication away. I got one that's perfect and you'll be better in a couple of weeks. It was called Deseril and I'd never heard of it. So I did what he said and threw away all my medication. The Deseril did nothing but speed everything up. I couldn't do anything anymore. My mood got worse, and it stayed that way for five months. To add insult to injury, I began to develop a, an eye problem, which is called blephospasm. And that's for the eyelid. The eyelid spasms all the time. Very un intolerable. Well, when they looked back, when my doctor looked back into my doctor, he said it was caused by the antipsychotic because I'd been on it for 25 or 30 years. So here I am, medication gone, Desiree now in charge and not working at all, and I can't keep my eyelids under control. Once again, the, uh, just like every other medication in the world, there are side effects, and this is one of them that I got from Navane. Um, Navane isn't used a lot anymore. It was an old medication, so I haven't heard anybody else getting what's, no, what's commonly known as tardive dyskinesia. My... Cousin is an ophthalmologist in Columbus, and he's the one who discovered that it was tardive dyskinesia. And he said, there's one treatment for it. 
that's Botox injections around both eyes. Well, that didn't sound too much fun. So after sweating for a week, I went in and got them. And they're not nearly as bad as you think. But what they do is they freeze the eyelids. And I was able to see again. So that was good news. But I'm still on a desert row and not doing any good. So I got up my guts and talked to another psychiatrist. And he said, that guy you're going to is a quack. Get rid of him and we'll put you back on what you were on before. And that got me back to a good place again. This was probably 1990, but I still had the terrible ruminations. I still had the depression. I still on occasion felt like I was worthless. And uh, I found a new psychiatrist somewhere between 95 and 2000 who when I'd explained to him about the ruminations and how I can't control my mind, he said, I've got just a pill for you, Paxil. Now, when I mention these different medications, I want you to understand that none of them work the same for any other person. Most people would not have the reactions that I had. So anyway, he put me on Paxil, and that did it. I, was, I don't remember the year, but between 1995 and something like that. And I got overnight. I was clear-headed. I could function again. The ruminations went 80% away. And I've been fine ever since. So that was a big plus. And of course, I got off the desert rule. Another problem with medication for me was that I had been taking lithium for 22 years. And when I got a blood test, they found that it had started to affect my kidney. And that was about 2000, 2003 or something like that. At that time, my kidney function was 55%. It was supposed to be around 80. Um, not much to do other than a diet. And they went to find out the cause of it. And as soon as they heard it was lithium, bang, they said, that's what did it. Well, It got worse and worse to went from 55 to 20. That's the uh, function. And then I was able to go on the kidney transplant list at that time. I was at 20 and I needed to be, I didn't need to be, I didn't want to be, but if, to get on the possibility of getting a transplant, it was about when you get down to 10% function, 
that you're probably going to go on dialysis, which I did, and then they watch you. So I'm on the, uh, I got down to 12 or 13 function left, and they put me on dialysis. I did peritoneal dialysis, which is doing it at home, um, not in a chair sitting at some center somewhere for four or five hours. But I did it every morning, seven days a week, and it took about an hour and a half. I could then take out the catheter and spend the rest of my day doing whatever I wanted. The worst thing about it was a terrible fatigue and it got worse and worse. And to make it into a short talk about the, the, uh, the transplant, I got a call on December 4th, 2021, that Mayo had a uh, kidney for me and they would let me know, it was nine o'clock in the morning, they would let, let me know by day's end if I qualified for it. I said, absolutely yes. The next day they performed the transplant on me and been doing well ever since. It's been over a year now and I'm doing just fine. So I have lived through bipolar. Well, doctors don't know if I uh, was bipolar when I was uh, raped or it just gradually started over time. But that has lasted all my life. And then I've had the uh, two terrible reactions to medication. And that, that makes me think of another thing. Um, I am now doing so well that for the last seven years, I've been a facilitator for two mental health support groups here in Phoenix. What I have found is that there are probably 20% of Americans who have some sort of mental illness and depression, schizophrenia, bipolar, um, there are several. And the same figures hold true throughout the world. And one thing I found is that there are all kinds of reactions to the different medications. The number one that I discovered was that so many of these medications cause terrible weight gain. I mean, 40, 50, 60 pounds. And that is intolerable to a lot of people and they quit taking the medication. And it is not just one medication, it's several. But here's the thing. If you want to get better, you have to make a decision and we'll just use the weight gain. Am I going to 
accept the weight gain in order to have my mind back and my life in control? Or am I going to give that up so I can be thinner? Now, you would think that it's, it's an easy uh, call, but for many, many people, it isn't, and they don't want the side effects no matter what they be. So they give up on the medication. Another thing that I see, uh, because I've been doing this for seven years, is facilitating. And it's probably one of the hardest things I've ever had to deal with. Is that a great high percentage of the people who suffer from depression, bipolar, and other mental disorders come from families where they were abused, neglected, beaten, sexually assaulted, and so on and so forth. Uh, most of the time is from a family member or a friend of the family. I have heard many, many countless of people in my groups breaking down and talking about these. And one thing I can do is sympathize with them because I went through it. Uh, it's horrible to, to realize that human beings can treat one another so perversely all the time. I don't know what the percentage would be, but it's a lot higher than you think. As I said, I've been doing the uh, facilitating for seven years. I have seen thousands of people come and go and probably, if I had to guess, the number that of people that, or the percentage of people that really get a good amount of help, somewhere 20%, something like that. There are various reasons um, for the low success rate is because many people do not respond well to the medications. Um, many people refuse to think that there's anything wrong with them. Many people refuse to think that they can be helped. And many people don't accept the fact that they can get help with therapy and medication. So it's not just because medications don't work and therapy doesn't work. It's because too many people have too many reasons why they don't get help and why they don't get expect to be a long road to getting recovery. If, if you're depressed for a long time and you have bipolar 
you can't just expect to take a couple of therapy sessions and a three or four weeks of pills and be cured. Quite the opposite. It's a long haul. It's a lifetime haul like I went through. Um, right now, I'm doing very well. I have raised three daughters. My wife and I have just celebrated our 50th anniversary. And we moved out here to Scottsdale in 2008, and it's been wonderful. I still have ruminations. I still sometimes can't sleep. Um, and there are other things that continue to bother me from my bipolar. But all in all, I'm back again and can't complain. What I've just told you, I have outlined in my new memoir, Teetering on a Tightrope. Um, I wrote this book because I have looked into and read many of the bipolar books over the years, and not one of them goes through a chronological history uh, of the person suffering from bipolar. So I decided to write it exactly as it happened, a hell of a lot more than what you've just heard, and I I think it will open a lot of people's minds because they most people have no idea what suffering bipolar sufferers go through, depression and so on. Yes, brothers. So the book will be out in on January twentieth. You can get it at Barnes and Noble, Amazon, and on Ingram. And I hope you'll look into it because you realize that you're thinking on what mental help or mental health issues people have are really real and bad. And you could, should consider yourself lucky if you don't have them. So anyway, that's it. Um, I don't know what else to tell you. It's been a pleasure talking to you all. And, uh, and it's been a pleasure hearing your story, Mr. Steve Wilson. I look forward to reading your book, Teetering on a Tightrope. Do you have an estimate of when it might come out? It's supposed to come out around January 20th. I just got my copies yesterday. Uh, so... I'd say give it oh, four or five, six more days, and then you can find it. All right. It's only 120 pages, so you're not going to commit your life. It took me, once I wrote it, it took two and a half hours to read it, and it's a pretty quick read. Okay, okay. So that's Teetering on a Tightrope by Steve Wilson, where he talks about his journey with the diagnosis of bipolar disorder. Remember, you are not your diagnosis. It's only an attribute of you, which may define your life, but you are not your diagnosis. Steve is diagnosed with bipolar disorder. He is not bipolar. This has been the Morning Therapy Podcast. If you haven't already, please subscribe to 
the Mortal Therapy Podcast, available anywhere where you push play to listen to your favorite podcast. Be well and be great. I can't breathe. I have migraines, numbness, weight loss. I live with it every day. The illness that I'm suffering from is an anxiety disorder and it deserves to be treated like any other illness, but it's not.